I'm Theresa Cowie and you're listening to Insight from RNZ. As Myanmar's parliament prepares to select a new president to lead the country into a more democratic future, the debate continues over how to fix a host of political and social problems and just what role the army and its MPs will play. This week, Insight travels to one of the poorest countries in Asia, where the euphoria of the election victory has given way to pragmatic politics and where the demands of ethnic minorities grow louder by the day. In November 2015, the people of Myanmar voted in the first general election for decades and threw off the shackles of an oppressive military government that had ruled the country, once known as Burma, since the early 1960s. For the opposition National League for Democracy and its Nobel laureate leader Aung San Suu Kyi, it was the culmination of decades of work in the cause of freedom, which included her house arrest for 17 years. The NLD's landslide victory with almost 80% of the elected seats gives the party an outright majority in both houses of parliament, control over lawmaking and the ability to choose the president, even if the 2008 constitution bars Suu Kyi from taking up the role, due to a custom-made clause which decrees the children of the president cannot be foreigners. The NLD vote is a huge popular mandate, and it comes with equally high expectations that the party can deliver the political, economic and legal changes the country is crying out for. What's going on now would be difficult for even the most competent of governments to handle. There will be mistakes. I think the Myanmar people at large probably hope that uh, with those mistakes that NLD is better placed uh, to make the kinds of decisions that will be in the country's long-term interests. Nicholas Farrelly runs the Myanmar Research Centre at the Australian National University in Canberra. He says the stunning victory by Aung San Suu Kyi was the culmination of an epic campaign, despite her years out of the public eye and her party's lack of specific policy. She has, throughout those years, cultivated an admirable public persona. People both here and around the world um, tend to view her with a great deal of affection, um, and Aung San Suu Kyi capitalised on that with last year's election and in any free and fair vote we knew that Aung San Suu Kyi's personal status, her aura and her charisma would ensure that the NLD triumphed even in places where they presented no-name candidates to the voters. Aung San Suu Kyi's name alone was enough to absolutely ensure that uh, the NLD would get a chance to form this next government. And while the public is right behind the NLD and its leader, the party's political inexperience, shallow pool of public service managers and the continuing control of key ministries by the army will all constrain just how much can be achieved. Nicholas Farrelly says Suu Kyi's determination to succeed will count for much. She hasn't always embraced the policies that many Western liberals would suggest are in the country's best interests. She's been hard-headed and relentlessly pragmatic. That pragmatism is likely to flow through to the new government where, of course, she will be forced to compromise with the armed forces on many occasions. They will remain the country's primate political institution and it will only be after many years of hard work and further compromise and reconciliation that 
Aung San Suu Kyi might have a chance to control all of the levers of power, which in her view and the view of many Myanmar citizens um, are the, the levers that are rightfully controlled by the democratically elected government. Zin Ma Ong is typical of the new crop of NLD MPs in Myanmar's sprawling capital, Naypyidaw. Like her leader, she is an activist turned politician, and like many members of the NLD, she has come from being a political prisoner to being a lawmaker. Her crime back in 1998 was to support the then imprisoned leaders of the huge 1988 protest movement with a poster campaign and a poem pointing out the military government had no legitimacy. Uh, at the time in 1998, uh, there was 10th anniversary of the 88 movement. As you know, at the time, there, are so, there were so many political prisoners, including the student leaders, and so we uh, demonstrate to release the political prisoners. And also we issued the statement, the poem, and, and notice uh, the ruling military government. They are not legitimates anymore without uh, people's support. We already have our elected party in 1990 election. So their only responsibility is that to implement this 1990 election. So we issue the statement and we deliver that statement and we uh, put the poster in the public area like cinema and bazaar so that the market, that's why we were arrested. So you were arrested for putting up posters and then you were found guilty of what? So our emergency ads, like um, uh, 5G, and also printing, and lawful printing uh, at Article 17. Sin Ma's arrest for unlawful printing eventually led her to Yangon's infamous insane prison, where she joined hundreds of others found guilty of crimes against the state. I was arrested and sent to the interrogative camps like others, political prisoners and detainees, and then sent to the insane prison for five or six months. Then ten months, eight months or ten months after that, we were transferred to the uh, you know, different prisons, and I was sent to the Mandalay prison. As a political prisoner, what was your life like? Uh, the life of the political prisoners are quite unique. Mm. Uh, we were uh, sent to the, the separate uh, building and separate cell. So firstly, uh, we very lonely and sol for solitary confinements for almost uh, five to so six years. And then the uh, we share the rooms with any others, uh, others, uh, the political prisoners. And then one year, two year after that, um, I, I was again sent to the cell, not just because of my and, and you know this uh, situation, but because of the most of the political prisoners were released before me, so that's why I left uh, alone. Really? Yeah. So you were regarded as a as a serious criminal, a more serious political criminal than the others. Yeah, yes, yeah, as they used to be afraid of and the political prisoners. She says she's not too concerned about the enormous weight of public expectation on the shoulders of the NLD. At first, I also worried about that, but in reality, they are much more, you know, they are not, they, they really understand what is happening in our political scenario oh, very much. So that's why I, I'm not concerned about their high expectations. They, they realize what is really happening and that what are the power centers. You know, there are big, uh, there's too many things to be solved as a, uh, the newly elected opposition party. 
So as far as I know and as far as I reach out the people, including some civil society friends and then people and grassroots people, they really understand how much a difficult issues we are uh, going to uh, manage and handle. But Nicholas Farrelly strikes a note of caution with the inexperienced NLD administration shaping up to run a country that is changing so fast economically and socially. So many things happening all at once. Um, we'll see balls dropped, but we will also see some quite miraculous juggling acts. And as people learn how to handle all the extra pressure and stress that goes uh, with this kind of rolling transformation, um, we shouldn't expect that what we've seen in the past is necessarily a good guide to what's going to happen in the future. Near the top of the NLD policy shopping list will be the vexed issue of land ownership. In Myanmar, current law stipulates that all land belongs to the government, and as such can be simply seized by the state at any time. And the practice of land confiscation, often by the National Army, the Tatmadaw, has been a feature of the military government for many years. And however enlightened it may sound, the political rhetoric of the NLD has not yet led to the restoration of human rights in people's daily lives. Growing grassroots demands for justice and the rule of law are running up against a reality of entrenched military and police power, which is now enshrined and protected under Myanmar's 2008 constitution, promulgated by the military government. Coercive land grabs take place regularly around the country and community leaders who stand up to the practice are attacked, jailed and their land rights are denied. The thing is the law is used on the one hand to block uh, accountability and justice issue but the law is also the, the inverse side of that is that the law is utilised very quickly to silence opposition. Yi Tun works in Yangon for the US based human rights organisation Justice Trust. She says international law demands that those working the land do have some right to it, even if they don't own it. But the reality is a little different. With our land rights case, we start seeing key prominent key activists. They get grabbed, charged with what's called Section 18 of the Peaceful Assemblies Act, which is if you want to protest, you have to file an application with the police. So people just get out on the street and protest, but then they get charged with Section 18. Section 18 is not like in the past where um, political prisoners, you get sentenced to 10 years, 20 years jail sentence. Here it's Section 18 at one township, six months, one year, but they tack on Section 18 across various townships. So you could be committing one offense, but you could have multiple charges from surrounding regions and you could ultimately end up serving six to nine years depending on how they pursue it. For those cases, those prosecutions happen very fast. She says land seizures continue and the NLD will have its work cut out, changing a system that is so integrated with the power of the military and big business interests, both inside and outside the country. She cites the land rights abuses at the copper mine at Lapidong as an example where the army in a joint venture with a Chinese mining company confiscated about 3,000 hectares from villages. That has to change in the sense that we have, I mean, with the case of Lepnang, Suchi herself was part of the commission of inquiry around it. And a lot of people are saying with development and stuff, you need to do 
proper consultation. So you start seeing certain international groups trying to do consultation, trying to address the needs. So I think that's the right thing. The way it's been done in the past is that the land is illegally seized. I think the question is people don't mind the land being, uh, well, of course they mind the land being seized, but there's got to be a, a consultation process of finding alternatives, whether it's alternative uh, work being provided, alternative housing, but often it's been that these kind of considerations are not being given at all. Of course, the land rights issue has a huge bearing on the vexed issue of who owns Myanmar's resources. The country is essentially comprised of small nation states, most with their own army and their own strong agenda around who owns what. This issue is nowhere better illustrated than in the northern Kachin state bordering China. The Kachin Independence Army has been at war with the National Army, the Tatmadaw, on and off since the country was first placed under military rule in 1962. After a ceasefire of some 17 years, the fighting began again in 2011. Thousands have been killed and more than 130,000 civilians displaced from hundreds of villages across the Kachin state in a war for resources, specifically timber, jade and hydroelectric power. Our constitution doesn't give protection to individuals' rights. No protection for groups like farmers, students, and etc. rights, and no protection for ethnics. So without any protection for all citizens, then it will be messed up. Con Jar is a Kachin peace activist. She says when the NLD takes up the reins of power, it must address conflicts over resources in Kachin state, in particular the jade mining industry and the illegal trade in opium. She says land law reforms will be hugely difficult given the army's involvement in the land grabs. We really need legal reform. So whether Aung San Suu Kyi and NLD can do legal reform, this is really critical issue for this moment, for peace. So imagine if they touch land law reform, that would be really have to face to face, they have to confront with military, because military is the one who really sees a lot of land. Can she really challenge? For Konjar and the major ethnic groups across the country, the solution to the land grabs and the resource wars is a real federal union of states. But the ethnic groups remain distrustful of a party that has betrayed them in the past and whose dominant presence in the parliament may alienate them even further. This is really what uh, ethnic armed groups and ethnic groups are uh, demanding, including political parties, what they call like federalism with self-determination. So, but for this moment, according to constitution, with this 2008 constitution, that never can happen. So this is also another quarrel between uh, ethnic group and Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD. Because according to NLD, they just want, like, talking about amendment. But uh, for the ethnics, they want a new constitution which guarantee or based on federal system. And land grabs by the Tatmadaw remain commonplace. Konja has her own story about her family in the northern town of Pinluin. My cousins, they already have, like, how do you call it, two times they were kicked out from their land. One, they were, because of war, they moved to Bin Uling. That was like, uh, Bin, Bin Uling is Mandali after Mandali, you know. In Bin Uling, they bought the land and then they built, you know, hardly built a house with like brick house. And then after that, the land was seized and that land area is now a uh, Tamado Technical School. And after that, they moved to Mobi. Mobi is outside of Yangobu. In Mobi, they started a farm. And then finally what happened was their farm was seized again by the army extension. So imagine, so yeah. So now if you look at a lot of land for this moment, very expensive. For money, that's lands were owned by like Mandali Pin Uling, that's area. For money, that's land, land were owned by farmers. And the farmers were kicked out. And then those land in the name of the uh, country then taken by the generals.
Myanmar media has undergone a massive transformation in the last three years, with TV, internet and newspaper outlets now free to report events as they see them. Thomas Keane is the editor of the English-language Myanmar Times. He's been in the job for eight years. The main change is that until August 2012, we had pre-publication censorship. So that meant um, every Friday we would finish our version of the newspaper, we would print it out on A3 sheets and send it to the censorship board, and the next night they would send it back to us with crosses through the articles and photos that we had to remove from the newspaper. We would send what we called alternates, which were our backup articles, and then whatever was censored we would replace with the alternate, alternate articles. Um, so it was a very direct form of censorship. It was very clear what you could and couldn't do, although towards the end um, you could ignore them on certain things and be reasonably confident that you weren't going to get shut down or anything. So what, what, sort of, um, what sort of things were they censoring then? What sort of things didn't make it into the paper in those days? Um, the first couple of years I was here, so 2008, 2009, there was a huge amount of content was censored. I mean, it would be maybe 10 articles a week. Um, it could be anything from... Obviously, political issues were sensitive, so anything about Dong San Suu Kyi, unless it had already been carried in the state newspapers. But they were particularly sensitive about anything that showed poverty, which is obviously a huge amount of what you write about Myanmar. You know, you can't hide the fact that um, the majority of people are very poor. But they would censor photos that they thought showed Myanmar in a bad light. So that could be someone looking poor. Well, we don't want people to see that. They would censor things from the social pages. So, for example, if there was a photo of a foreign man and a Myanmar woman at a social event, they would censor that. Um, if the woman had a skirt that was too short, we would have to Photoshop a longer dress onto her. The censorship covered a huge... Like, the whole newspaper. I mean, they were, they were reading the classified section. Um, they were checking the advertisements. Censorship of that kind has gone now, and Thomas Keane is looking to a future where his paper can publish more of the stories detailing the new politics in Myanmar. Myanmar is home to 55 million people, and its commercial capital, Yangon, bustles with a massive workforce, with many unemployed and poorly educated in a nation where 51% of the people are under 28 years old. But among the city's 5.2 million residents are those young people who will bring this country into the 21st century. Welcome to Pandiyar, the place of creation, and the Yangon-based brainchild of Australian David Madden. He's convinced Myanmar is on the cusp of something big, with homegrown entrepreneurs about to shake things up in the tech sector. What we saw in 2014, and this was before you know, the new telecoms had even launched in Myanmar, was this incredible energy amongst uh, the tech community and an incredible appetite from outside organisations, civil society groups, small and medium enterprises, social enterprises, to try to figure out how to use technology. So we created Pandia as a permanent space to really to be a home for that kind of innovation and, and the use of technology. Myanmar is an incredibly poor country with um, enormous challenges to address <laughs> across almost almost every sector, uh, almost any metric or, or, or index that you could think about, um, Myanmar has an incredible amount of work to do. What's interesting uh, about the time at which Myanmar is tackling these problems is that um, technology has the potential to 
um, to, to help you know, my leapfrog to, to solutions. And so what we've seen in less than two years is that Myanmar has gone from a country that where almost nobody was connected to, you know, a very, very large majority of the country is now, is now connected. Uh, and they're not connected through uh, these old sort of feature phones, but they're actually connected through smartphones. Uh, and they're using them as smartphones. So this is um, potentially a huge advantage. Uh, and so Pandya's mission is how does Myanmar harness the potential of this technology to accelerate change and, and development? And we think that has implications across um, most, of these, most of these sectors. David Madden says his work aims to address a massive skill shortage in the country. It's an incredibly competitive job market right now in Yangon. It has been for several years. Um, you know, one of the challenges that the, that the new administration faces is that the education system has been, has been, has been badly, badly underfunded um, for, for a really, really long time. And it's, it's difficult. There's no quick fix to something like that. Um, and so, so people, um, talented people with, with good skills, are at a real premium in, in Myanmar today. While David Madden sits about retooling the future digital entrepreneurs in Yangon, across town a New Zealander working with the International Labour Organisation is continuing his work developing trade unions in a country where the concept of worker rights was until recently an alien one and where forced labour was common. Steve Marshall once fronted the Employers' Federation in New Zealand. Nowadays he's on the other side of the fence helping to set up trade unions. He says forced labour in Myanmar was simply abhorrent. It's fascinating because actually an awful lot of the public, and this is what we've got a, a lot of people haven't come to grips with, is that all of these nice changes, uh, at, which are very positive, right, we cannot assume that actually the people understand the concepts that we take absolutely for granted. And so for the last 60 years, actually people thought that forced labour was something that governments did because they didn't have the concept of freedom. Uh, they didn't have the concept of, of, of choice and, and understanding of rights. So they would basically, each village would have a loudspeaker system and the chairman of the village would say one person from each household will report for duty tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock or else. And one person from every household would front up and they would then be taken off to do road repair or a bridge, bridge repair or something like this. And while the military government's promotion of forced labour framed it as individuals helping their country, the future was a little more prosaic. The reality was it was simply an, an absolute abuse of power. And also it was a reflection that the value of a life was, was zero. Uh, we had instances where um, the military would use civilians to protect the military. So, for an example, the mine sweeping. And that, that was an economic issue. It costs to train a soldier. Why would you risk a soldier when you can use a civilian? Steve Marshall says prosecutions of the army for forced labour offences in recent years have also reduced the practice, as has the recent ceasefire in some ethnic areas. But he says the ceasefire will only bring partial peace. And he says the army's place in the society and economy may be hard to change. The Tatmadaw is a, is a very large army. Um, it has been central both in terms of defence and security and the economy. I don't believe that's going to change overnight. The Tatmadaw, I think you find uh, that the NLD and others have got an understanding that the Tatmadaw is going to be critical to the way in which the country evolves. 
I think there will need to be some sort of change as you move towards the defence forces becoming part of a government framework where a president and the cabinet with the Tatmadaw accountable to the government, whereas previously you've got the situation where they're either seen at an equal level or, in fact, in reality, where the government is accountable to the, to the military. While the Tatmadaw may manoeuvre to find a new role, its appalling human rights record is close behind. And in some parts of the army there is still a smug certainty that the move towards civilian control is really only a nominal one. The army holds 255 of the seats in Parliament, controls any change to the Constitution and continues to control three central ministries, including the Home Affairs Ministry, which in turn controls the greatly influential General Administration Department. The army also has the ultimate trump card. The Constitution gives it the power to take back direct control of the Parliament. In this political environment, the victims of the Tatmadaw's violence and cruelty over recent years can only wonder what will actually change. New MP Marthandar entered politics after her journalist husband was kidnapped and killed by the Tatmadaw. She is now one of hundreds of NLD MPs in the capital, and yet another who was once deemed an enemy of the state under Article 124 of the Constitution, which makes it an offence to perform an act that may destabilise the government. Yes, she was uh, arrested in 2007. Uh, the reason one is that the government accused that uh, she tried to assault the state government, then sentence, life sentence. She is charged for life, life sentence, but released in 2012. I asked her if she was building a new society. Yes, she believed someday there will be new society, but there are too many challenges ahead of us. And also she mentioned that the, the people's expectations. So we, we can't uh, do it, but gradually we can change. And was she concerned about the high expectations from the voters? Her point of view is that rather than high expectations, people are asking for uh, what, they, you know, what they have lost in the past. So that's why, comparatively, 2012 and 2015, NLD have much more burden than 2012 in this 2015 election. While the NLD's newly minted MPs come to grips with the realities of running Myanmar, those who voted them in now join the military in demanding their own agendas to be addressed. For the ANU's Nicholas Farrelly, it's a fascinating scenario, but not without profound risk for the NLD. You look closely at Myanmar's immediate neighbourhood and there are two countries with which some useful comparisons can be made. Those countries are Bangladesh and Thailand. Both Bangladesh and Thailand have flirted over the decades with democratic rule. They have yet to come up with a stable system uh, which serves the purposes of the dueling national elites and which also gives the people uh, a reasonably regular chance to have their say. Thailand right now is a military dictatorship. Bangladesh uh, has an entrenched and unelected 
authoritarian clique uh, who are calling the shots from on high. For Myanmar to avoid those kinds of outcomes is going to require a lot of fancy footwork and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there could be some future remilitarisation of Myanmar's politics. And if that happens, then the lost opportunities will be immense and it will be a further tragic chapter in what has far too often been a profoundly sad story. I'm Graham Acton and that's Insight for this week. My trip to Myanmar was funded by a grant from the Asia New Zealand Foundation. You can contact us on email at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is insightrnz. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Teresa Cowie with technical production by William Saunders.